This is the ID Fanatic podcast coming to you from beautiful Midtown Toronto on Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. Yes, 420. Put that in your pipe and smoke up. The podcast where we talk to real instructional designers for one half hour about their lives, their careers, and how they keep it all together. First, I want to thank all of you who left reviews of the show. I really like the feedback, and now that you've started, keep them coming, please. The link is kite.link slash theidfanatic. Today's guest is Lauren Waldman of Learning Pirate, a training consultancy that specializes in how to apply new discoveries in neuroscience to our learning designs. Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi, Mitch. Good morning from uh, beautiful downtown Toronto. All right. So now, how are you? Ah, uh, well, it's been a rough week. I, I just, I just don't feel the need to lie about any of it. You know, we're, we're, as you know, we're in a, a very harsh conditions of lockdown here and you know it's we're, it's funny that we're irony is we're talking about the brain and uh, i'm just trying to get mine back online and and operating yeah. are you in a in a condo where are you at um no i'm in a i'm in a home um and i've uh, currently snuck out to my office for a little bit of sanity so <laughs> is your office in a tall building or, or where is that no no we're really lucky we've got um so one of the great things for all for the people who are listening one of the great things about uh toronto is we have some beautiful old historical buildings that have sort of lasted the the, the uh-huh. end of time and, and i'm in one of those downtown near a gorgeous park <laughs> okay so it's in a renovated historic house yeah <laughs> okay good i was uh i i was up in thornbury for a few days i probably shouldn't have been but we went before the lockdown started okay well <laughs> and you just, know that just loophole. came back down last night <laughs> so thornbury is a beautiful town on um not Osaga bay in not northern ontario but mid, middle ontario and uh so we were up there with my wife and my kids and my dog and the dog Beautiful. loves it. There were a couple of swans nesting there, and that's not usual. But uh, he went kind of nuts. <laughs> well, we all are going kind of nuts. Yes. <laughs> Just some of us in a better. Dogs are living their best for, lives right for now for a different reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I thought I'd start with some Jewish geography since we both uh, grew up in Toronto. Yeah. And uh, so, where did you grow up? Um. So I I grew up. You know, family family owned business right downtown. It's Peter and Spadina, which is right in the heart of the fashion district. Oh my! You know what? Yeah. And in the eighties, I was living there. At, I was living on Richmond. Yeah. Right near Peter. There you go. You probably probably <laughs> across saw from the, a... across from the club. There was a big. There's a big. I don't know if it's a club anymore. There was a huge club on the corner. Oh, that whole corner used to be full of, of life and entertainment. Uh, wow. I, I blame millennials for taking that away. <laughs> so were you above a store? Uh, no. So our home was, you know, more midtown and then their office was downtown and we were ah. there pretty much all the time. So little five-year-old Lauren was uh, was learning, learning street sense, walking around downtown Toronto. What kind of business did your parents have? Uh, so I, my parents had lots of businesses, but the one that was down here, um, was they were in fashion, they were in swimwear imports. So ah. yeah, young, young me in the eighties grew up around, uh, swimsuit models with very big hair and <laughs> wow. yeah, we lived, I guess it would be closer to uptown. So sort of on oh. the border of, uh, North York and Thornhill, the 905 uh, uh, and, oh, 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 yeah. 
And then they crossed, they crossed us over from the 416 to the 905. My parents grew up in, like, around Brunswick and yep. Harvard. Okay. And then, uh, I, I spent a lot of my youth down there as well. I don't know. <laughs> that's a great area. Favorite, just my favorite part of town. Oh, no, that's a great area. Beautiful old homes there, too. All right. So if anybody's visiting Toronto, that's uh, <laughs> Harvard. We're, yes, and, and, you know, uh, we're, we're, and we're open for and, tours. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, according to your LinkedIn profile, you got your degree in English Lit at the University of Waterloo. And ah, while you yeah. were still there, you were already teaching English as a second language and doing some other things for the Tessel School that you worked for. It seems like your passion for teaching started early. I think my passion for teaching started when I was, you know, five. And I would take over kindergarten because I had a very, uh, I had a, a very strong um, love and uh, I guess an aptitude for music. Mm. So I would, I would sit and play the piano. I, I, you know, I was very famous back then playing the theme song of Sesame Street <laughs> for, for all my little friends. Um, That's yeah. pretty good, actually. Thank you. Thank you. For a five-year-old, yeah. Yeah, so I uh, know I was pretty, uh, I think growing up in an entrepreneurial family, it just, uh, it hit me, it, you know, it got into my, my system pretty quickly. So teaching by the time I was five and started my first business around the same time. So <laughs> what do you mean? So back in the day, I'm dating myself, but back in the day, uh, stickers, stickers were all of the rage. So, you uh -huh. know, when you're young, you had a sticker album and you'd trade them and whatnot. And it just mm -hmm. so happened that my uncle was the owner of the most uh, popular and famous sticker company at the time, Sandy Line Stickers. So I would go to the factory and he would load me up and I would sit in the window at recess and uh, sell, st sell stickers for candy money. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so I've always had the spirit of an entrepreneur, apparently. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and you enjoyed school, I presume. Oh, oh so that was, that was my question. Um, you went to uh, Seneca for adult education? Yeah, and, I figured, uh, you know, teaching? by then I've been teaching for, by the time I went to Seneca, I'd already been teaching for, for several years because I, uh -huh. I moved to Japan. Um, I, I think, you know, this kind of ties into the pirate in me, but I've been traveling since I was legal to have a passport and leave. And uh, So you were yeah, teaching so English in Japan? I was teaching English in Japan, um, but I was also, I was writing. I was a writer at the time as well, and I was throwing parties and events because I was in my 20s, and I still had that that going for me. So I was doing a, I was doing a lot of things, but the, the teaching really started, um, and what sort of set me on the trajectory of where I'm at today, it, it all started in Tokyo. And then how did you get to Australia? Well, I was in Australia um, working with a boutique insurance company as their training manager. You just happened to get it. You applied for a job that happened to be there? Yeah, uh, there was a, a need and I had uh, a partner who I was going to go meet over there. And I uh -huh. said, all right, well, let's go. We've got we've got a man. We've got a job. We've got friends. And yeah, I suspected uh, the partner thing. <laughs> that that often is a good reason for a big move. <laughs> well, you know, before then I'd already moved like several times before, so that was it. It was just a great reason to go to Australia. And then once I left Australia, um, I then started working for the cruise ships, Royal Cru yeah. Caribbean Cruise Lines. So I was the onboard training officer, and my ship took me right back to Australia. So <laughs> Did uh, so the Alaskan tour? Yeah, the Alaskan tour, and then over to Australia during the winter seasons here. Do you still travel a lot, or was the, did you get it out of your system? 
Oh no, I mean, it was, it's constant with me. I mean, it, well, until pandemic hit, it was constant. So yeah, no, I've been traveling even right up to the last, the last stage I was on was in Prague. February, just before the pandemic hit. I missed my Prague days. I've got mm. a friend who lived there for a few years in the late 90s when it uh, when the wall fell. But uh, I intended to go, but never made it. Beautiful city. Um, in the in the adult, let's see, adult education and staff training was uh, the Seneca thing. Did they specifically cover instructional design there? I think they tried. I think, you know, that was that was several years ago. And I think that there was still gaps in the in the way that, you know, instructional design and learning design was was taken. So, you know, mm -hmm. even in the title, it's training, right? And yeah, training, yeah. training to me is something very different from learning and learning design. So it so was still you, behind. How did you get your instructional design training? Well, I think, you know, I, on the job. started off started off <laughs> as a teacher right so yeah, i mean yeah. you kind of learn from the you know as a lesson planner you sort of get your basis and your ground knowledge there but then mm -hmm. it was more i was um especially in japan i was working with such a diversity of students and um when i started transitioning into the corporate clients that's when sort of everything changed because i was working with you know very you know, prominent people within BMW and Tokyo Disneyland and the uh, the airlines. And that's when I started, started to shift into the more, okay, this isn't just lesson planning anymore. These people really need to learn for professional purposes. Uh -huh. So then it became, okay, how do we really understand what learning is and what design is? And um, intuitively it, it came to me, but it wasn't until much later. I mean, I did my CTDB with um, what was formerly the Canadian Society for Training and Development. Uh -huh. Um, and I just started building, building my knowledge and building my credentials. But um, I think I was doing a lot of what I was doing now very intuitively without knowing what it was or uh -huh. why I was doing it. I've heard you say in some other podcasts that you uh, were sort of dissatisfied with, I don't know if it was the work you were doing or the work you were seeing done in training and mm -hmm. development that made mm -hmm. you want to take a, a deeper dive into how learning works. Yeah. Um, so I've been wondering, uh, was there any specific incident that, sort of was your turning point? Um, you know, I think it was an accumulation. There wasn't just one specific incident. I think, you know, from from organization to organization that I went to and, you know, the contracts that I was doing, it was more the fact that I started to see a very large disconnect in the expectations of what people were expected to learn, how fast they could do it, and then translating that into implementation. And time mm. and time again, I was watching that fail. And time and time again, I was watching really lovely humans and employees just get crapped on um, for, for not being able to do something that they didn't, didn't learn yet because they weren't given either the proper tools or resources or more importantly, the time to complete the process. So that was kind of, um, you know, after watching that for very long, I just recognized that there was so much more I could probably do outside of an organization than inside of it. So in 2016, you decided to dive into some... Uh online certificate courses at Harvard and Duke University. Mm -hmm. That took a while. I looked at the syllabi, they look really interesting. Uh, yeah. I had no was... idea there were such things online. It was, it's really, uh, it looks ah. really in-depth. Are those uh, virtual instructor-led training or was it more independent? Those are independent, yeah. Those were those were asynchronous. Um, but I'm I'm very keen when it comes to my own learning. And so I was already 
bothering and harassing the professors and um, reaching out to the schools and um, the moment that I sort of got a taste of the sciences, I realized very quickly how incredibly important this was going to be. Um, and it was also an incredibly challenging learning experience for myself. Yeah. You, you didn't have the, the kind of uh, background in that sort of thing. Oh, before. not even close. Not even close. So it was, um, you know, I think... It's interesting because looking back on that experience, it really did help me to understand the process of going through it myself. And it was mm -hmm. really hard. <laughs> but then as my knowledge about the brain started to grow, I could understand why that process was so challenging and why it, you know, what was working with me and what was working against me in my own brain while I was trying to learn. So how well were those courses structured? Not great. You know, it was your very standardized online learning and videos and, you know, end of module quizzes and, um, you know, they, they weren't structured very well. But the content, so the first one that Harvard did, which was the Foundations of Neuroscience, um, when I did it, it was exceptionally difficult. Um, they got very highly scientific and they must have gotten a lot of feedback from people who were just like, hey, this is too hard. Mm -hmm. And they wound up changing and it made it a lot easier. So I'm, I'm grateful that I went through the the harder version of it to really go through the, the struggles of learning that I did. Um, and then the second course was was much more delightful because you know you get into case studies and mm -hmm. um, you know you really start to understand what happens not when the brain is working right but when it's working wrong and yeah. you know that's you know devastating case studies about strokes and um, aphasia and phantom limbs all all the things but uh, yeah. phenomenal to get to know the brain on that level. Now I have a couple of questions to ask about applying neuroscience to training since that's your chosen field. Mm -hmm. I mentioned. And just to let our listeners know, I also I have a Bachelor of Science in Cognitive Science uh, from the University of Toronto. I went back to school in my 50s. How's that for continuing education? Love it. And um, something you said in other interviews is uh, for corporate training departments is to realize that we're never, or most of us, are never taught how to learn. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I don't want to misunderstand. Do you mean from that that we need to teach our students how to learn? Absolutely. We need to teach our teachers how to learn first. <laughs> then they can transfer it over. But it, it's something that we were never um, fundamentally taught. It's really, I think, a condition of the educational system that has been in place for well over 100 years. But based on what we know about learning and, and neuroscience, mm -hmm. uh, it seems that learning is the most natural, universal mm -hmm. thing that we do. Babies learn as soon as they open their eyes or even before they exit the womb. Mm -hmm. uh, our experiences and sensation are what shape us, you know, in a dynamical system sort of way to develop our worldview and our concept and our understanding of what things are. So I would think that the idea of putting neuroscience to instructional design would be to take advantage of how humans learn because they already know how to learn and then arrange our designs to support that. So when it comes to, you know, when we're looking at, at cognitive neuroscience or, you know, yes, are we all inherently born learners? Absolutely. But we lose, you know, when we're a child and we're learning, we're not necessarily, we're doing it by trial and error a lot. We're not, we, we don't have the, the logical parts of our brains to be able to tap into to do it more intentionally and logically. 
And as we get older, I think that's the part that we're missing is that we we don't necessarily we, we take for granted the fact that we, we think that we can just learn, which we can. But when we switch the narrative and we understand that there is a more strategic and intentional way of doing it, we can work with the operational system as opposed to against it, which typically we are. You also talk about, you know, the difference between logic, emotion, logic and emotion. Mm. And from what I understand, uh, logic doesn't happen without emotion. Like our first reactions before we even know that we're reacting uh, involve emotional responses and guesses about the world. Mm-hmm. And then often, often what we call logic is just justifying how we already feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you how do you get around that sort of conundrum? Oh, I don't. They're inherently tied to one another. Everything that we do and we learn that we encode, there is that sort of connectivity between those two functions. So we don't get around it. But I think that when I say logically, I'm, I'm saying sort of in our methodologies and our intentionality of using what we know from the functional areas and then pairing them with the methodologies, that's what I'm referring to when I'm saying tapping into sort of a more logical and intentional way of going about learning and design. So we sh- should we also be paying more attention to uh, emotional responses and Absolutely. guide yeah. the learning? Absolutely. Because if we don't, then we're missing a piece of the memory puzzle. Now, you referred another podcast I heard to doctors Elizabeth and Robert Bjork of UCLA. Ah, yes. <laughs> glad you did, because I've never heard of them. So there's one application that they have that I haven't heard of before that I found really interesting called uh, Interleaving. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I love interleaving, yes. So standard learning is, you know, when we, when we, we go back to the classroom, just, you know, to sort of look at our experiences, we did blocks of learning. So you would have, you know, your math class for 45 minutes and you do your English and go into geography, et cetera, et cetera. And those were very, you know, A, B, C, D. Interleaving is a method that allows for the brain to be challenged by placing things in a different order. So maybe one moment I'm doing English for, you know, the half an hour, but then I skip over to the math. But then on part C, I'll come back to the English. So I'm not necessarily doing everything in that sequential order that we were all very, very much taught. So it challenges the brain because it consi- it, it's what Bjork calls a desirable difficulty. So it requires effort and you know makes it more challenging. So it's mm-hmm. all really about the sequence of learning. These desirable d- difficulties are, uh, they're also sort of counterintuitive. Yeah. They're, they're things that you would, you know, one of the reasons that blocking is used because it seems natural, it seems, you know, it seems logical, quote unquote. Yeah. And that seems like common sense to do things that way. And uh, so the interesting thing about all their techniques is they sort of, they go against the grain. If there's not what you would have thought of would be effective. And that's, it's, well, the funny thing is, is that's why they are so effective is because we're challenging ourselves in different ways and we're challenging our brains to sort of network and look at mm-hmm. things in a different, you know, in, in, in something that is not as, um, you know, common to us. So that's what I'm saying. When you grow up in a standardized educational system and, you know, you sort of learn that way for 20 years of your life, then going back and saying, okay, I'm going to, I think this is one of the challenges with learning as an adult as well as our behaviors and our beliefs around the processes get in our own way. Mm-hmm. So that when we want to go and challenge ourselves and be doing something different, I mean, the brain loves its, you know, its current state. 
you know, it does want to be bothered. <laughs> it's just like, I'm good. <laughs> like, just, I'm good. Like, oh, you want to make things hard for me? No, I'm good. Like, I'm good with what I've got in there. And so it's that, that's why it's uncomfortable. And that's why it can be challenging to us because that it's, it's also that you, we've got the biochemical things happening in our brains, but we've got a very f- tangible physical process that's happening with yeah. our cells and the pieces in there that literally have to move around, become stronger. Um, you know, they've got to rearrange in some way in order for a new memory to be created. Yeah. Have you actually used the interleaving in any, any training you've All developed? All the time. Consulted All on? the time. Can oh, you yeah. a, I'm trying to imagine what it looks like in practice. Can you just give one example? Um, okay. So, and, and I'm going to try to do this as best I can, because usually this is with visuals. Um, yeah. So, for example, um, I had done a very large scale onboarding training. And one of the, it was a very environmentally based, <clears throat> excuse me, training because it was in a warehouse but these warehouses were like 10 football fields long. (laughs) They were huge. So I had to first think about psychological psychological safety when I was designing this. So how did I use interleaving? Because what we first know is that if if your brain is, and your brain and your body for that matter is in a state of stress, you're not really learning much. Your cortisol levels are up, your executive functions are sort of offline. So how could I design to first assimilate somebody to their environment? That was very important. Mm. So it was a matter of, okay, let's let's keep it simple. So you know how to get in through the front door, but can you get to station A, let's say. So day one would be, all right, we're just going to get you to station A. That's all we're going to focus on. We're going to do all the little things in between. Great. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not even going to talk about station A for another day or two. I might have them passively walk by it or do something like that, but I'm not actively encoding that sort of pathway to station A. Instead, I'm going to wait until Wednesday. And then I'm going to spend a little bit of time, you know, depending on how I've broken up the the learning sort of intervention, doing something that's going to throw their brain off a little bit. It's going to distract them from even bringing forward that memory of where station A was. But then somewhere in the middle of the day, I'm going to have, I'm going to have something in there that says, okay, you got to get to station A. So, that is, and then I would continue that pattern, but it might not be on an every other day because then the following day I might be like, all right, you're back at station A, but then I would skip two days. And that's really how I'm allowing for the brain to be challenged to see if it can retrieve. It has to keep retrieving the memory that it's trying to encode to solidify it. Mm-hmm. So when you interleave, that's really how you're helping the brain do its, you know, do the memory process here. It's you're allowing it to, you know, go home, have a good sleep, consolidate some of it, and then allow yourself to be challenged to try to retrieve that memory. So this is sort of learning as brain manipulation. <laughs> I mean, I'm no Yoda, but like... <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe, maybe you should have Jedi instead of pirate on your website. I'm, uh, I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next few questions are more about your personal life to give listeners some insight about how you juggle your different roles. All oh right. <laughs> so in Facebook ease, what is your relationship status? Unknown? I don't know. Unknown. Right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, how would you describe your work-life balance, or is there any? There's, you know what, I'm not going to lie to everybody. There, there really isn't much of one right now. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's the joys of um, not entrepreneurship, but solopreneurship. As you know, taking breaks is important. 
Oh no! I oh no! My I regiment so like you know I take I take incredibly good care of uh, of my brain because I need it to work for me. So no, I've got you know my own regiments of um, you know no no technology within the first hour of, if not more of my day. So there's no mm -hmm. phones in my bedroom. There's no there's absolutely no blue light or any sort of EMF waves coming in through me. And um, meditation is a very big daily practice of mine. And I actually enjoy exercise. I just don't you know. Uh -huh. Don't do it as well, often as I should. <laughs> you've, just reminded, you've just reminded me of another question that I, that I had. Um, meditation and exercise mm. are mm. two of the best things you can do for your mental function mm -hmm. uh, in terms of just as a, a general ongoing sort of thing. Have mm -hmm. you uh, talked with corporations about this at all, about in, think of it as part of linked to their training? Uh, oh, yeah. Programs? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's usually, um, you know, typically when I'm designing a large scale intervention, it's mm -hmm. embedded somewhere in there. There's breaths, there's breath work, there's, um, and, and really it's not necessarily about, you know, building up the practice of meditation per se, but it's the, it's more about building up the practice so that you can practice the skill of focus. Yeah, I think the other thing too is like we're very sedentary. So when we're sitting for so long, I mean, the blood need, uh, we need to get the blood up from our butts to our brains. Our, our brains need to have like, you know, good blood pumping through there in order to function. So yeah. it's, you know, any sort of movement and exercise, you know, I tend to stand up or get up every 30 minutes at most. I, I don't like to sit for longer, longer than 35, 40 minutes um, just for that reason. It used to be called wellness. I wonder if that's still the thing in the corporate. <laughs> I, well, there's All a right. new buzz term every every month. <gasps> yeah. That's okay. the two-minute warning. To wrap up, I'd like to ask the 10 questions survey from the Actor Studio TV show. Have you ever oh, watched it by any chance? I have, but I don't remember what the question is, so I'm excited. Okay, but you remember at the end they ask these 10 yeah. questions to the actors. It's always kind of fun. <laughs> um. So the idea is just say the first thing that pops into your mind, not not let your brain get in the way, all right? <laughs> okay. Uh, what is your favorite word? Tree. <laughs> That's a great word. I love tree. Yeah. What is your least favorite word? Oh, uh, I, I, can we, I, asshole. <laughs> kind of Good. <laughs> what turns you on? Creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Ooh, um, intellect. And what turns you off? Ignorance. What is your favorite curse word? Fuckery. And what sound or noise do you love? <laughs> Yar! <laughs> oh, yes. So explain that. You're going to have to explain that one. So that's your... On your website, it says you are really ready. How did yes. you come up with that? Uh, YAR is the war cry of learning for me and of learn. It's, it's the ideology behind learning pirate. And um, I, it was a word that I had said long before learning pirate ever mm -hmm. came up. But basically, it was that first exam, um, the first story, the first uh, certificate that I got from Harvard. When I passed, this massive like YAR came out of my mouth. And I just kind of sat there silently and go, what does that mean? That must mean something. <laughs> and just in that in that moment, it was like, Lauren, oh my gosh, you are really ready. Like, you're really ready. You know this. Go, go, go teach other people this. And I was like, yeah. And then yeah, became, no, it's a really uh, positive, you know, positive mindset sort of, sort of thing. 
Oh yeah, anybody who, who gets to know me um, eventually winds up yarring themselves. I guess that's like the mirror neurons taking over, but I, I do yar a lot. <laughs> All right, what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, the sound of someone crunching ice. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, oh, that's a good one. Um, quantum physicist. I know that's super nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? <sighs> that's a good one. Dentist. Had an experience with that when I was younger. <laughs> now the final question shows its European origins, but if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> uh, the party is over here. <laughs> oh, cool. That's original. Yes. <laughs> All right. We're done. Amazing. <laughs> this has been fascinating. We got to get our geek on a little bit. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so how do you feel? I feel great. I do. It's, uh, it was a great, see, great way to get a boost of serotonin at the end with those questions. That's great. Good. All right. Glad you enjoyed it. I did. The ID Fanatic drops every Tuesday at noon Eastern time. I hope you're inspired to subscribe and write a review. Good, bad, or ugly, let me know what you think. That link again is kite.link slash the ID Fanatic. To get notices of upcoming episodes, you can sign up at theidfanatic.com. You'll also get a free gift of my instructional design cheat sheet. You can contact me, Mitch Moldovsky, on LinkedIn. And I hope that you and yours have a totally awesome week. Bye, bye, bye.